Please turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11 and 16 to 23. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps try to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, Issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was find, found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is the word of God. My son wanted to share, we have the same sneakers. That's the reason why we're wearing, I'm wearing sneakers today. Um, so in case you're wondering, no one cares, but just in case. Uh, yeah, my son, we, we have matching pair of sneakers, and he was like, right before when he made me change uh, my wardrobe, uh, because he was like, ah, well, let's wear the same sneakers. Um, <clears throat> uh, we've been looking at uh, the series in the Old Testament, um, and we've come to, gosh, the last four uh, sermons in the series 
one of the most famous texts in the Bible, Daniel and the Lion's Den. And from this passage, I'm going to get right into it. We're going to see four things. We're going to see the excellence of Daniel, <clears throat> the persecution of Daniel, the faith of Daniel, and the rescue or the salvation of Daniel. We're going to see his excellence, his persecution, his faith, and his salvation. And from this, we're going to see that God doesn't work despite evil and sin and brokenness, but through evil and sin and brokenness, even death. First, we're going to look at the excellence of Daniel. Here's Darius. Darius is the king of Babylon. That is the world's most powerful empire up until that point. And he appoints 120 governors. That's what these satraps are, these governors to rule the kingdom. And he's got three administrators overseeing these governors. And one of them is Daniel. So Daniel, he's actually a professional. He's working uh, for the government of a foreign country. And, he, and he, so he's got high status. He's got high wealth. He's excellent in what he does. And he moves all the way up. How does he do that? Three ways. One, his character. Verse 2, these satraps were made accountable to three administrators. One of them was Daniel, so the king might not suffer loss. Verse 4, they could find no corruption in him. In other words, Daniel had integrity. Daniel was trustworthy. The second thing is, verse 4, he was not negligent. What that means is Daniel was disciplined. He was a hard worker. He was diligent. He didn't lapse in anything. He didn't overlook anything. He treated that kingdom like it was his own, even though he was the lower guy. You see that? And three, verse three, D Daniel so distinguished himself by his exceptional quality, qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom, the whole kingdom. In other words, he had quality leadership. So Daniel possessed the character, the work ethic, and the qualities of a leader that really made him stand out above all the other people that he worked with in the entire kingdom, the entire enterprise. Now, think about this. This is Philadelphia. It's a pretty big city. It's very diverse. What do immigrant parents tell their children in a large city like Philadelphia? Be honest. You got to work hard. You got to work. You got to outwork other people. That's how you set yourself apart. That's how you make a name for yourself. But here's the problem. In a big city, everyone is hardworking. Everybody needs to work hard. How do you set yourself apart? Because the reality is you can be honest and you can be really diligent. And especially if you're like Daniel, if you're brought to this world as a minority in a sense, people will exploit that work ethic. People will exploit that honesty. And in any large corporation, an empire, what do people do? The reality is they often resort to dishonesty. They're going to cut corners. They're going to be negligent in their work. At the least, they're going to resort to politics and patronage versus real leadership. And here, these governors, these satraps, right, um, these high officials, that's what they did. The king's people were corrupt. They were dishonest. But Daniel is trustworthy, and he's, he's got an incredible work ethic, and he was excellent in his leadership, and so it set him apart above other people. Friends, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian in a society that is hostile to the God of the Bible, in a society that is hostile to biblical values? Because here's a case study. Here's a model of one excellent character, excellent integrity. Verse 4, there was no corruption. They were looking for stuff to get him on, and they couldn't find anything. I mean, he was trustworthy. He was winsome. Of course, in an enterprise, 
in a kingdom, in an empire, in society, modern society, maybe in your office or workplace, having integrity by itself is not going to make you credible. But secondly, this is a model of excellent servanthood. Everyone else in this empire is trying to take advantage of the king, but Daniel's serving the king and he's honoring the king so that the king and his kingdom would prosper. Verse 2, so that the king wouldn't suffer any loss. But lastly, Daniel is an exceptional leader who served the king by being great at what he did with a great work ethic and with great character. That is unique. That is rare. In verse 5, they said, we couldn't find any basis for charges against Daniel unless it had something to do with the law of God. So they knew what Daniel believed. They knew what he stood for. They knew what kind of values he had. It was actually public. In other words, they couldn't, they couldn't get rid of Daniel because of his character. They couldn't get rid of Daniel because of his work ethic. They couldn't get rid of Daniel because of his leadership qualities. They spoke for themselves. Daniel wasn't like the other people fighting and clawing his way up to the top with dishonesty or some sort of patronage or fake loyalty. His rising was merely a fruit. It was an outcome of living out his faith in a society that didn't know God, that was actually hostile to God. His character, his work ethic, his leadership, it came out of a faithfulness to his God. He wasn't serving the earthly king. He was serving the king of kings. You see that? And he was, he was faithful to God every day. We're going to see this. And that made him consistent, and it made him effective, and it set him apart from other people. That was, that is the excellence of Daniel. Secondly, we see the persecution of Daniel. Verses 4 and 5, it was very clear that his peers, his, his so-called friends, they were, they were trying to find grounds for charges against him. But they say the only basis for charges against Daniel is if it has something to do with the law of God. In other words, the only way that we're actually going to be able to get him is if we tie something to his relationship with God because we know he's not going to compromise that. So they came up with a plan. Really, the plan was specific to target Daniel himself. There is no recorded incidents in this particular passage where they're trying to target people simply because of their race or because of their faith. They were going after Daniel. Why Daniel? Think about this. There were three administrators that were overseeing the entire kingdom. But they knew. It was clear. It was, it was, it was known. All of a sudden, the king's about to promote Daniel above all of them. And verse 4, it says, at this. So they knew about this. They conspired. Why? Because they were threatened by Daniel. There's something about Daniel. It threatened them. I mean, he was a winsome person, a trustworthy person. He, he had great work ethic and great qualities in a, of a leader, but that threatened them. Why? It was because of his character. It was because of his work ethic. It was because uh, he was winsome. It was because uh, uh, not only was he not negligent, but he had great leadership skills. I mean, they tried to find corruption charges against him. They tried to find something in his, maybe he was neglecting something. I mean, clearly this guy had to lapse somewhere. They tried to look for flaws in his leadership, and they couldn't. Now, why were they doing that in the first place? It's because they were corrupt. They were negligent. And they weren't as effective as Daniel as a leader. Clearly, Daniel was too good. He was too good. As long as Daniel was around, their flaws would be exposed. They were at risk. 
And because Daniel was so openly pious, they just resented him, and so they conspired against him. It's not because he was guilty of anything. It's because he was innocent. That was the, that was the person of Daniel. The reality is this. In our society, the rejection of Christians more and more to some degree is unavoidable. If you're a Christian, there's going to be greater and greater degrees of rejection that you're going to experience. But the sad thing is, and I, I was going to, I had a list of things, but for the sake of time, I have a list of, the, of ways that Christians are going to be persecuted, subtle and very overt ways that we are persecuted for our faith. But the sad thing is most Christians today, they're not persecuted because they have so much integrity. They're not persecuted because they're so faithful in their work. They're not persecuted because they're so effective in their work. Today, Christians are persecuted. They are trashed because they don't act any differently than the rest of the people around them. That's the reason why. So they're not trashed because of their character. It's so set apart from anyone else. They're trashed because you can't tell the difference between them and anyone else. But not Daniel. Oh, they tried to get him. They tried to bring him down, but they couldn't. And so they just resented him. They hated him. Daniel wasn't hated because he was a foreigner. He was hated because his values, the center of his motivation, his relationship with God, that was foreign to them. You see that? Now, imagine a person who says, well, the only wealth I have is my retirement portfolio. It's my money. It's my bank account. If those things are gone, I have no more wealth. The only beauty I have is in my looks, in my youth, in my dress. Because uh, if, if or when my physical beauty is gone, if my youth is gone, if I age, then I have no more beauty. The only love that I have is the approval of my friends or the approval of my family, my parents even. But if my friend or my father or my lover, if they reject me, I'm no longer worthy. I don't have any worth. But a Christian says no. I am centered around a deeper wealth. I am centered around a greater beauty. I am centered around the ultimate approval, and I'm longing for that. I'm pursuing after that. So, so any success that I experience in this city, that's not what shapes me. It's a privilege to have those things, to have status. It's a privilege to have wealth. Those things aren't negative things. Those things aren't bad things, but I'm not longing for that. I'm not pursuing that. I am a citizen of the eternal city. Daniel's not just a foreigner geographically. He is a foreigner relationally and with, with respect to his relationship with wealth and power and status. Today, even in the church, I mean, there are people in this room right now. I mean, we're just longing for wealth. I mean, that's what it's about, right? That's what we say. We're just longing for power. We want to just move up that ladder. We're just longing for relationships, intimate relationships, all apart from God. But why does Daniel, why does Daniel pray with his windows open to Jerusalem? What is he pursuing? What is he longing for? He's longing for the city of God. I mean, he's in this foreign place. He's in the wilderness. He's just longing for God, the city of God, his relationship with God. It gave him integrity. It shaped him. 
It's not enough to say, I believe in God. Daniel's saying that belief, that faith, that trust in God, it has shaped him and his character in this foreign place where he may be one of the only people who values what he values, and yet it shaped him. It gave him a residual integrity and a resilience that just allowed him to work hard and still serve the king because he's honoring the king of kings. You see that? It made him very, very effective. And the reason is because what gripped Babylon What gripped that empire, the earthly empire, didn't grip him. And so he was able to integrate his faith and his work. That integration, it made him whole. It made him complete. You see that? So when he served his king, it wasn't about the wealth. It wasn't about the status or the power, making a name for himself or proving himself. Friends, we have pastors who do that even. This isn't just a worldly thing. If you are in this world, we are all at risk of that. Just working to make a name for ourselves, proving ourselves. Verse 10, three times a day, he is praying and yearning for Jerusalem. The presence of God. And he knew no matter what he had, this isn't home. No matter what privileges he enjoyed, this isn't home. I am a foreigner. Every day, he's living into that reality. The reality that on one hand, even though he was rising where he was, it wasn't home. It will never be home. He is a foreigner. He is like a resident alien. He enjoys the privileges of living in a foreign place without being a citizen of that foreign place. You see that? And so he lived in this foreign land. He experienced the privileges and enjoyed the privileges of that land, but it wasn't home. And so he's not going to root in those privileges. That's not what he was pursuing. But on the other hand, that's where God placed him at the same time, you see? And so he says, while I'm here, I'm going to pursue just faithfulness. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to maintain integrity and yet be faithful. And the outcome was it made him incredibly trustworthy and yet incredibly effective above everyone else around him. And everyone still knew at the same time that he had a relationship with God, and so he had different values. And they couldn't get him. They were trying to get him. They couldn't get him. He was just too respectable. They feared him. You see that? Today we talk about arguing for the gospel arguing for the gospel. So what we do, our view of that is, man, I'm just going to engage in these theological debates, these arrogant theological debates. I'm just going to debate. I'm just going to fight and, and, and fight for the gospel. And we feel so good about it. We just talk, especially even in the church, this culture of just talking down about people and what they believe. And we say, well, what we got to do is we got to evangelize. Friends, do you think that's good evangelism? I mean, when you meet anybody with that kind of mentality, Would you want that person as a friend? One of the best ways to engage, one of the best ways to engage with our world today, with the gospel, is what? First, be great at what you do. Wherever you are, be great at it. Work hard, and yet demonstrate a resilient character of the gospel, biblical character, integrity, which is going to make you really effective on one hand and yet incredibly winsome because it doesn't have the bite. It doesn't have the arrogance on the other hand that everybody else who's just anxious and desperate and just working to just move up, that's what characterizes them. Look, if you're just accomplished, people may respect you. They also may be jealous of you because you're you're just part of that race, that power play. Or if you're on the other hand, you're just about faith, what you believe. 
you know, in today's world, which is really like Daniel's world in ancient times, they're just going to ignore you. You're going to be irrelevant. But if you're accomplished and faithful, if you're accomplished and demonstrate a character of faith in the Lord in your relationship with God, you will be respected and trusted by some people, feared and confusing to other people, and so there will be persecution. Persecution is actually in some ways an indicator of faith. Today, a lot of us are persecuted because we're either not accomplished and we're not excellent in our work. That's not real persecution. Or because we're super arrogant and offensive with our faith and we're kind of standoffish and almost judgmental and arrogant with our faith. That's not persecution. How do you apply this? On one hand, if you're always trying to excel, but you're not praying with your windows open, essentially, you're not yearning for the presence of God, you're not really obeying God. You're not really being faithful to God. But on the other hand, if you're offending others because of your faith, oh, they need to hear truth, truth, truth. We're going to fight this with truth, right? I need to fight for what's right. I need to fight for our values. But then you're not engaging them relationally through prayerful encounters, then you're not obeying God either. On one hand, if you're not trustworthy and diligent and serving, praying for the prosperity of people around you, then you're not really obeying the call of God, the mission of God. And you're probably not going to be liked as a result. That's not persecution. On the other hand, if you're always outspoken about being a Christian, and your views, and you're hated for just that, that's not really persecution either. That's just you being a jerk. You see that? In the Bible, persecution is always an outcome of living in the context of righteousness for the gospel, doing honor to the gospel. What does that mean? It means on one hand, you're going to conduct your work with excellence before God. He is the person who placed you there. But on the other hand, your life is characterized by wisdom and honesty, sacrifice, generosity, humility, humility. A care for others around you, an openness to others around you, to different people who are just not like you, which leads to what? A greater kindness, a greater joy and delight, a greater love, a genuine intrinsic value in the work that you're doing because God has called you there and to the people around you and yet still demonstrate courage because of what you believe. By the way, that's going to make you a great neighbor anywhere. And at the same time, it's going to make you open and vulnerable to people everywhere. So you may always be a target as well. You see that? That's the persecution of Daniel. Thirdly, let's look at the faith of Daniel. Daniel is a great citizen of the law in the most powerful empire in the world to date. But then he becomes this victim of injustice. So in verses 6 through 12, the king, he's really, he's really trapped in his own law. It's a corrupt law that's kind of built, and the king is kind of blindsided. Uh, and he himself didn't really think about what he was approving. He didn't think to validate what they, were, what they were suggesting or proposing to him. But Daniel, he does validate this. He's thinking about this law. And Daniel, he's a great citizen. He's a great citizen of the law, but this law goes against God's law. 
And so in verse 7, anyone who prays to any other god except a king is committing a capital crime, is going to be sent into the, sentenced to death in the lion's den. Daniel, in verses 10 to 11, he still prays to God. He still prays to God. Why? Because he knows the difference between serving a king out of calling, earning wealth and, and status and power. That's just residual. That's just an outcome, a result of those things. He's serving. He knows what it means to the difference between serving a king out of calling and worshiping the privileges themselves, worshiping the status, worshiping the wealth, worshiping those privileges because of idolatry. He knows the difference. He knows the difference between enjoying the privileges of serving in this world and making an idol out of those privileges. He knows the difference between serving uh, out of a love for God, out of calling, the calling of God, and yet serving out of the fear of man and the voices of man that instill fear. Now, you're going to say, well, pastor, I mean, this is the government, right? This is the government. This is the law. I mean, we should be sensitive to the people around us. Isn't that being a good witness? We need to be sensitive to the law. Every nation has a right to their own laws. Yeah, and so did Hitler. Daniel upheld the law of the nation, but then he submitted all those laws to the scrutiny, to intense scrutiny against God's word. It's why even though it was forbidden, he still prayed. And he prayed. It wasn't like he was being arrogant. I'm going to open my windows out wide and show the world. You see in that passage, in verse 10, it was as he had done before. He was just doing what he always did. He was just consistent. You see that? What do we learn about his prayer life? Well, verse 10, what does it mean to have a prayer life? Three times a day, it says. In other words, he prayed regularly. He prayed habitually. Verse 10, he also gave thanks. He prayed thankfully. As he had always done before, that was regularly. It wasn't just during times of trouble. Clearly, he, this is a pattern of life that he had set up. Verse 11, Daniel's a man of status. I mean, he's a man of power, high power. But he prayed asking for help, and he prayed on his knees. In other words, he prayed with humility. So he's praying regularly, habitually, patternistically. He's praying uh, thankfully, and he's praying with humility. He's not relying on that status. He's not relying on his wealth or his power over other people. He's not relying on just his own wisdom and I'm going to fight the system. He's not arrogant like that. He's just praying for help. What does that mean? I mean, prayer has got many dimensions, but they all reflect how you view God. How you pray reflects how you view God. Is God just your friend or is he your king? Is God someone who just improves your life or is he your life? In verse 10, I mean, Daniel's just on his knees. In other words, he's going against this earthly king. I mean, that's scary. He's going against this earthly king because, but God is this true king. And so he's looking to Jerusalem and he's longing for Jerusalem. He's praying about that. What that means is he's always at his heart turned to God's presence just longing for God's presence in it. He's wanting a clear view of God because, I mean, it's stressful. He, this is not without stress. He needs the wisdom of God. He needs the presence of God. And he did this regularly. He did this habitually, patternistically. That means before he even went into the lion's den, he knew he was living as a foreigner in the city of Babylon. The lion's den was just a microcosm of the world he was already living. He was in 
a world of lions. You see that? A hostile society to the God of the Bible. He's already been in it. And so he's just seeking after God, seeking after God's presence. Some of us, we only worship God when things go well. It's easy to do that. Some of us, we only worship God when it's convenient. It's easy to do that. Some of us, we only worship God in times of trouble because you got nowhere else to go. It's easy to do that. Some of us, we only go to God when there's no risk to us, when there's no cost to ourselves. In all those cases, you are not going to God for God. You are going to God for things. Why do you go to God? Do you go to God? Well, because of his faith, Daniel is thrown into a den of lions. What was his rescue? What is his salvation? As a child, maybe you were like me. I was taught through what I realized now much later, they were very ill-equipped teachers, that if you just obey God, if you just trust God, he will shut the mouths of these lions in your life. So you better obey. Like Daniel, be like Daniel, obey, just trust God. And those lions, God will just shut those lions around you. That said a lot to a guy who was like 100 pounds, like in ninth grade. Think about this. If that is the Christian life, show me one success story in the Bible. Because even Jesus trusted Even Jesus obeyed, and he was devoured. He was consumed. If that is the version of the gospel you've been living out, then you're going to be exhausted, you're going to be anxious, and you're going to be so confused when you feel the teeth kind of clamping around your legs or your arms or just your soul. You're going to start distrusting God. Why did Jesus come? What was the purpose for Jesus to come here. Daniel, he trusted in the midst of suffering, but here's somebody, Jesus Christ, trusted even more than Daniel. He obeyed and trusted God perfectly. I mean, Daniel, he was betrayed in the first half of this passage and then redeemed in the second half of the passage. In verse 17, the stone was rolled over him to seal his defeat, to just mark his death. I mean, it was grand. I mean, the king is just pressing that signet ring in there. It was dramatic. There was defeat. He lost. But then the next day, he's lifted out of the lion's den, and there wasn't a scratch on him. He was alive. He had won. God worked not despite evil and sin and injustice and suffering and death. He worked through that evil and sin and and suffering and justice, injustice and death. You see that? To do what? Verses 21 to 24, the king, Darius, he's overjoyed because Daniel is alive. And through that evil and through that betrayal and through that death that was designed specifically for for Daniel, God sealed the fate of his conspirers. They were devoured. They were thrown into the den. And they said that they didn't even make it to the ground. As soon as they were pushed in, the lions got them before they even hit the ground. And as a result, Daniel is alive, the evildoers are dead, and the king makes a call for the entire kingdom to turn to God. Now, of course, that that kind of large-scale revival never happened, especially in Babylon, never happened, because we all know that is going to take an even greater betrayal, a greater persecution, and a greater salvation, and a much greater Daniel. Centuries later, Jesus Christ, he's obeying God fully. 
perfectly, trusted him fully and wholly. He had integrity. He was trustworthy. Hebrews chapter 1, you talk about somebody who's in charge of a kingdom. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus Christ upholds all things by his word. John chapter 1, Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. In other words, God placed Jesus over the entire world, all of creation, and he was excellent and he was good. But then John chapter 1 also says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive. And you know what that means? Jesus Christ became a foreigner to his own people. And they resented him, just like they resented Daniel. They were jealous of him. They feared him like they feared Daniel. And they tried to find charges against him, but they couldn't. I mean, he was innocent. And so Jesus is being attacked on all sides by the high officials on one end, by the religious on the other end, and he was condemned by an unjust law in an unjust manner through an unjust trial. And like Daniel, he didn't fight. He was just silent. And here, I mean, notice there's nothing entirely miraculous about this passage. A man disobeys the law. We see that all the time. Um, and there's an unjust law. We see that all the time. The system is corrupt. We see that all the time. And he's sentenced to death. We see that all the time. And so he's thrown to the lines, and these lines are called to just tear up and kill and destroy. But Daniel is in the den. He is in the den, and he's just unharmed. What does that point to on the cross? Jesus Christ is practically reciting Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's very important. Because in Psalm 22, he also says, all who seek me mock me. They are insults at me, shaking their heads. Oh, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. And get this, in Psalm 22, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. That, the lions in the Old Testament represents the justice of God. You have to get this. Jesus himself is called the Lion of Judah. He is justice. He is justice. And yet on the cross, he suffers the ultimate injustice. And he's silent. He is in the ultimate lion's den on the cross. And there he receives the full justice of God, the wrath of God as a penalty for our sins. This is the ultimate cosmic injustice. This is the sins that we, I mean, the wrath that we deserve because of our sins. And so his body is just ripped to shreds. He's bleeding everywhere. He is just barely mustering up enough energy to breathe and to survive, to just last it all the way through, to receive the full wrath of God. His body is ripped apart, torn apart, and he cries out, my God, my God, I'm forsaken. Why have you forsaken me? And so, you know, you see, in, with Daniel, there was an angel present, an angel present to keep the mouths of the lion shut. But what Jesus is saying as he's suffering, the ultimate suffering on the cross, the ultimate lion's den, he's saying, I'm forsaken. I'm rejected. There is no one there to save me or rescue me. And so his soul is being torn apart from the Father. Artistically, you would say that the Trinity is being ripped apart as the Father has left and departed from the Son. You see that? 
like lions that are ripping apart. Jesus Christ, the greater Daniel. And he faces the ultimate lions in the ultimate den of the cross. But three days later, he rises again from the dead. And though his body and soul were torn apart, Jesus shuts the mouths of the ultimate lions, the only lions that could ever truly tear you apart, cosmically and forever. He shuts the mouths of the ultimate lions, the justice of God that we deserved once and for all, forever. And so though his death was meant to destroy him and to make a mockery of God, the stone was rolled over the grave. It was used by God to sentence death itself to death. When they rolled away that stone, when the stone was actually rolled away, do you have burdens? Friends, I mean, when I look around, we have burdens. Some of you, you're just battling accusation, and those accusations are real. I mean, there are things that you did, and that guilt haunts you. Some of you, you're battling accusations, and it's things you didn't do, but you're just getting pinned on it. They're saying things that may not be true. That is injustice. I get it. It's, I get it all the time, actually. But the thing is, and you're suffering from that, and it's almost like the stone is rolling over your grave. You, it's tearing you apart. Some of us, it's by our peers or because of our guilt or because it's actually sin or because of our failures, things that we have done, or maybe it's just, just injustice. And these things threaten to rip our souls apart. Look to the ultimate Daniel who suffered the ultimate lion's den and was torn apart. Why? So that God could shut the mouths of lions, the roaring lions that are accusing you of all things, working to threaten to tear apart your soul. Those lions' mouths are shut now, once and for all. They're satisfied. Look, growing up, I was taught, be like Daniel. Trust and obey, and he's going to rescue you. But think about this. If you just moralize Daniel in the lion's den, the gospel, the word gospel means good news. That's not good news. That's bad news. That if you're good, God is going to rescue you. Jesus Christ was perfect, and he died. That means if Jesus Christ suffered, you're going to likely suffer. You will suffer. Everybody suffers. You can't out-obey sin, and you cannot out-obey suffering. That's bad news. Ah, but the gospel means good news about something, a rescue, a salvation, a victory that has already happened. That's what the word gospel actually means. Jesus Christ is the greater Daniel who went through the ultimate den of lions for you. He was perfect. He obeyed. He trusted God to the end. He had faith in God to the end. That's the good news. That means that when we descend into our smaller dens of lions, every accusation, you can trust in Christ. You can trust in Jesus. That real justice, the only justice that can ever tear you apart has already been served. You know what the word Daniel means? God is the ultimate judge. So when you're in the lion's den, 
Oh, when you're in the lion's den, that stone is rolled over the grave. It's lonely in that grave. It's dark in that grave. It's scary in that grave. There's rejection in that grave. There's humiliation in that grave. There's just a hungering and a thirst in that grave. Things are ready to pounce on you and devour you in that grave. Look to Jesus who died alone, who was betrayed, not just by his enemies, but by his friends. And he faced the ultimate darkness. And he faced the ultimate fear of being separated from God. That nightmare became a reality in his life. He was devoured by that reality. Forsaken by God. It's the only way. Why? It's the only way that you can trust that God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Then you can live with poise. And you can live with confidence. I mean, are you in a den right now? In this, we're all in a den, first of all. We are all in the wilderness. We are all exiles. We are all foreigners. If you're living in the world, you are living as a foreigner called by God, a citizen of another country, the eternal city, the city of God. So that makes this the largest den of lions. Hust- that, that means that, that the world is a hostile place to the gospel. Rather than spending your energy fighting that, what does that mean? What saved Daniel, the presence of God, long and yearn for the presence of God? It was more than an angel. Daniel got an angel. We have Jesus Christ, the presence of God by his spirit that empowers you. Do you know that's the same power? The spirit of God dwelling and residing in you, that same power is what rose Jesus again from the dead. That is the power that resides with you. That is great power. Some of us are constantly working and trying so hard to prove ourselves to other people to win their approval, or just to be able to say, this is my worth, I have worth, I'm okay, you are justified. That's what we're saying. The justice has already been proven, friends. The gospel saves you from that exhaustion. The gospel saves you from that anxiety. When you hear the roar of accusation in your life, guilt or injustice, and the the roar of those lions say, forget you're a God, mock you're a God, abandon you're a God, trust in your skills, trust in your wealth, trust in your titles, trust in your power. Friends, none of those things are going to save you in the den. None of those things are going to save you in the den. Rather, trust in the faithfulness of Jesus, who's torn apart for you already in the ultimate lion's den, so that you can be restored rescued once and for all. And let that, root yourself in that. That is the greatest privilege. That is the ultimate privilege. Let that overwhelm all the other privileges you enjoy and live in accordance with that. Let that shape you. Let that reality. You want to talk about the love of God, the approval of God, the love of a parent or your friend or your lover? Jesus Christ died for you. Let that be your validation. Root in that reality and in that truth, and God will lead you home. You don't just have an open door to Jerusalem, an open window to Jerusalem. You actually have the city of God with you, God residing with you. Let that be your strength 
and confidence and power. Let's pray.